Long live fake fame. And is Facebook killing comedy? That's not very funny, Tom. No, it isn't. <laughs> this is episode 79 of Media Unplugged. We're finally almost up to 80, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom A. Sacker. Tom, I had somebody approach me the other day and said, hey, I listen to your podcast. You and Tom seem to be having a lot of fun, to which I said, well, what podcast are you listening to? <laughs> Long live fake fame. You know, Tom, the hallmark of our era is authenticity. And what would be more appropriate than an article on the follower factory from the New York Times? This was a great piece. I'm only going to touch on this because there's so much here. Because as we all know, the New York Times has never seen a topic which can't be written in too many words. So there's a company called Devumi which is very memorable. It sells Twitter followers and, re and retweets to celebrities, businesses, and anyone who wants to appear more popular or exert influence online. And Tom, that defines roughly what? 100% of us all, right? I know, not me, but yeah. Not, not me either, of course, <laughs> because I've long since given up. <laughs> drawing, drawing on an estimated stock of at least three and a half million automated accounts, each sold many times over, the company has provided customers with more than 200 million Twitter followers based on a New York Times um, analysis. Mm -hmm. At least 55,000 of the accounts use the names, profile pictures, hometowns, and other details of real Twitter users, including minors, but of course are not those real Twitter users. Mm -hmm. By some calculations, as many as 48 million of Twitter's reported active users, um, roughly 15% are automated accounts designed to simulate real people, though the company claims the number is far lower. I so strongly suspect that they're wrong and that these guys are right. In November, Facebook disclosed to investors that it had at least twice as many fake users as it previously estimated, indicating that up to 60 million automated accounts may roam the world's largest social media platform. Isn't this great? It is. <laughs> while, t while Twitter and other platforms prohibit buying followers, Devumi and dozens of other sites openly sell them. Tom, how does that work? <laughs> I know. <laughs> and social media companies whose market value is closely tied to the number of people using their services make their own rules about detecting and eliminating fake accounts. It sounds like a bit of a scheme, doesn't it, Tom? Yeah, everybody seems to be in on it, don't they? I mean, it, Isn't that interesting <laughs> that it, 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 it suits the purposes of every member uh, it's almost, you know, it's it suits the member the purposes of every member um, on the on the team. The Times reviewed business and court records showing that Davumi has more than two hundred thousand customers, including reality television stars, professional athletes, comedians, TED speakers, pastors, and models. The actor John Leguizamo has Davumi followers. <laughs> so does Michael Dell, the computer billionaire, and Ray Lewis, the football commentator. <laughs> Kathy Ireland, one of my favorite examples. The one-time swimsuit model who today presides over a half-billion-dollar licensing empire has hundreds of thousands of fake Tavumi followers, as does the host of the show American Ninja Warrior. Even a Twitter board member, Martha Lane Fox, has some. <laughs> my, my favorite example in here... I know which one it is. is. You know which one it is. I've got to get to it. It's the one... You um, should wait on him. <laughs> you want me to wait on that? Yeah. No, it's not the one you're thinking of. Then it's Hillary Rosen. Oh, really? That's that, okay. I got my favorite. I'll bring mine up. Okay, <laughs> I'll we'll get that. And it was over two years. The Democratic public relations consultant and CNN contributor Hillary Rosen 
bought more than a half million fake followers from Davumi. Ms. Rosen previously spent more than a decade as head of the Recording Industry Association of America. Okay, that's why you know. Okay. Um, in an interview, she described the purchases as, quote, an experiment I did several years ago to see how it worked, end quote. Well, <laughs> she, made more, <laughs> she made more than a dozen purchases, Tom, of followers from 2015 to 2017, according to company records. Now, I don't know about you. The other 11 purchases run, that didn't show her how it worked. <laughs> yeah, if I run an experiment once, I don't need to run it 11 more times to know if it works. So, Tom, go ahead. No, lay it on Listen, me. that article, I, I loved it. It was fascinating. I mean, to me, and, and, and I hear what you're saying about it because <laughs> it was lengthy, but that's the kind of in-depth reporting that newspapers need to do more of, right? We need people right. to pull back the curtain on all of this bullshit that we're seeing so that we can become a little bit more conscious of all of the assumptions that we're making about the world. You know, I like this. They had this guy, what was his name? He's the founder of this uh, Distill Networks, the cybersecurity company. Mm -hmm. I love his quote. He said, social media is a virtual world that is filled with half bots, half real people. <laughs> Not everything is what it seems. And I'm looking at that and I'm saying, half real people. And, and that was interesting because in essence, the people that are even real are only half real because, right. because they're polishing their personas they're after attention it's a big game everybody's playing it's a big game and 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 even the people who are real half of the people who are following them are not real half of what they're writing about themselves are not real i've commented to you you know we have this lengthy conversation after the show that's always you know the stuff that we would would never want to share publicly but people would love it if we if we did and one of the things i always commented is you ever go to linkedin Show me the person who's frowning on LinkedIn. Oh, I know. No one's ever had a bad day on LinkedIn. You know, everyone is extraordinarily successful, and I'm sure everyone's on LinkedIn posting stuff because they don't need to. They only want Listen, to. Listen, I'll tell you something worse than that. What people do, and, it, and it's a big game, is they'll write an article where they frown in the article, mm -hmm. where they talk mm -hmm. about misery. They'll track stats. And if they see, mm -hmm. oh boy, more people are reading this miserable stuff, they'll start writing miserable stuff. It is unbelievable mm -hmm. what's going on. It's not like, here's what I want to share. It's let's measure everything and make sure that what I'm doing is what people want. And we're all feeding mm -hmm. this thing constantly. But it's not even what people want. It's what we want people to want. So we're going to manufacture a want that doesn't really exist to demonstrate that we're fulfilling a want because the very act of showcasing the fulfillment of that want um, allows people to know that we're in the know. No, this is this. No, what you just said sounded really confusing, right? But it's absolutely true because this is the paradox of this whole thing. This is what's strange about the internet and social media. So we use popularity as a signal for reputation. Mm -hmm. We always have, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, look, everybody shops there. Everybody wears that. Everybody buys that. We use that as some kind of signal that says that some set of criteria was evaluated and judged by a large group of people. So that makes that, makes that right, safe. Mm -hmm. It makes it good. Mm -hmm. Okay? Now, now watch. If you can't get attention then people will assume you have a poor reputation, right. right? So what do you do? 
you purchase popularity. That's listen. Mm-hmm. People and brands have been doing this forever. Companies. Well, that's what an ad is, right? Yeah. That's what a that's what a an ad fundamentally is: the purchase of popularity. Okay, and what's PR? Right when they get you the a purchase of popularity, right, a media appearance. That's purchase of popularity. When a consulting firm buys tens of thousands of copies of their own book to drive it to the bestseller list. <laughs> per- oh, that never happens. Oh, right. Purchase of popularity. <laughs> when Red Bull early on paid people to leave empty cans of Red Bull in the restrooms of high-end clubs out in L.A., purchase of popularity. Mm-hmm. Everybody's doing this stuff. Now, the problem mm-hmm. is, is with social media, no one can... You, I, I don't even know how we're going to stop this, but as long as there's a financial incentive for popularity, people are going to push the limits of what's right and wrong. Look at that idiot, that YouTube celebrity, Logan Paul. People are yeah. going, and there's a lot of idiots in the world. <laughs> you know yes. what I mean? Every time I see that guy's face in headline and another Hollywood Reporter piece, I think this is why I'm getting an email from the Hollywood Reporter to update me on Logan Paul. I know, I know. <laughs> and here's a guy that now, goes I've, on these morning shows. I'm so sorry, I'm so I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to give some right. money to them. And then he goes and takes a stun gun and hits a bunch of rats. Exactly the same thing all exactly. over again. Now, do you want to, I, I, I think I know which quote you're talking about <laughs> that you thought I was going to. I want to give you a chance to do that one or I will. Okay. I love at the end, the piece about the marketing consultants who buy followers as evidence of their expertise. And, and then they had that former professor who calls himself the world's <laughs> leading celebrity yes, branding authority. <laughs> <laughs> and what I love is they said, in his recent best-selling book, The Kim Kardashian Principle, Why Shameless Sells, they report that he had a different explanation for his rising follower count. He says, my social media following exploded because he had discovered the true secret to celebrity influence. Authenticity is the key. <laughs> I almost fell this out of my man, chair when I read that. This a man who, according to this investigation, purchased thousands, hundreds of thousands of fake followers. Authenticity is the key. Well, I mean... Think, I think actually just saying authenticity is the key. I mean, but look, I, do people understand this? I don't think they do. When they look on social media and they see somebody that has a million Twitter followers and you know hundreds of thousands of Facebook followers and it's a marketing consultant that says that they can get you those followers, then what they should do is walk in and buy a bunch of fake followers for you because that's how they got them. Right. But that's not and what the they flip say. Side, Right. The flip side is those marketing consultants who say that they can get you a bunch of followers and they have fewer than you do. (laughs) (laughs) I probably trust them more. (laughs) You're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asecker and Mark Ramsey. Is Facebook killing comedy? Tom, this was just the most precious piece of all all time. This is from something (laughs) called Split Cider. I don't even know what that is. Must be a Um, comedy site, right? It's not very funny, that's all I'll say, because (laughs) here's how it opens. Last month, in its second round of layoffs in as many years, comedy hub Funny or Die uh, reportedly eliminated its entire editorial team following a trend of comedy websites scaling back, shutting down, and restructuring their business models away from original online content. Hours after CEO Mike Farah delivered the news via an internal memo, Matt Klinman took to Twitter, writing, Mark Zuckerberg just walked into Funny or Die and laid off all my friends. Clinton explained in a thread, there's simply no money in making comedy online anymore. Facebook has completely destroyed independent digital comedy, and we need to effing talk about it. 
So this piece is a conversation with him about that, and I found this to be extraordinary. Oh, I um, loved it. Let me. Oh, I, it's it's just amazing. Um, I, I, let me walk through because there's a subtext here, which I'm sure is what you honed in on, like I did. Right. That's just much funnier than funnier die. <laughs> The whole story is basically, this is what he says, the guy says, that Facebook gets so much traffic that they started convincing publishers to post things on Facebook. For a long time, that was fine. People posted things on Facebook. Then you would click those links and go to the websites. But then, gradually, Facebook started exerting more and more control over what was seen to the point where they, not our website, essentially became the main publishers of everyone's content. Today, there's no reason to go to a comedy website that has a video if that video is right on Facebook. And that would be fine if Facebook compensated those companies for the ad revenue that was generated from those videos. But because Facebook doesn't pay publishers, there quickly became no money in making high-quality content on the Internet. It seems to me they're not favoring things that are high-quality they're favoring things that are clickbait, things that are optimized for Facebook, low-quality things that appeal to the lowest common denominator, and honestly, just things at random. Facebook <laughs> has created a centrally designed Internet. It's a lamer, shittier-looking Internet. <laughs> it's, it's just not as cool as an Internet that is a big, chaotic space filled with tons of independently operating websites who are able to make a living because they make something cool that people want to see. I mean, there's just so... This is like... You know, this is like talking to the guy, the 18-year-old kid in the band who's fuming because, you know, his band has to play gigs for anyone to hear his music and buy his CDs or download his tracks. And you just want to say to him, well, dude, that's the game. No, yeah. Uh, no, you're right. Look, at he's pissed off. It, but you think about it, what's he pissed off at? Right? It's like reality. It's like stubbing your toe and getting yes, pissed, that's pissed off at the door. <laughs> At the door. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> I, of course, the whole business model doesn't make sense anymore, right? When you give your content away to Facebook and they use it to drive everyone through, you know, this habit, force a habit to use Facebook to look at it. And if it's ubiquitous it be, and because of the abundance, it decreases in value, of course that's going to happen. And this is the whole attention being the current people don't oh my this listen this game this attention game mm -hmm. is is if you don't see through this game that's being played this currency when attention becomes the currency and people are willing to give away whatever they're building to create mm -hmm. that currency everybody's business model is threatened look amazon is crushing everyone with that model, they're giving stuff away to get attention on certain... Mm -hmm. And they won't tell you. They're just shifting all kinds of losses to different units. They don't care. They want the attention. Look at me. Look at us. Anyone who writes books, you write books. Last year, there were over a half a million books published. Right? And now it's growing because of self-publishing. How many, mm -hmm. on average, does each book sell in a year? How many copies? On is is average a fair metric though, or is median a better? Metric? I don't know, but you know what the average is: two hundred and fifty what is copies. Wow. Well, okay. So I'm saying, right. why do people keep publishing books? For the money? No. For the love? Well, some of them, but they're people publishing books like crazy, Mark, for attention. For attention, right? And and indeed, this relates to the uh, the I sent you an email this week 
from uh, oh, a vanity a publishing yeah. house from book. I, I wasn't going to mention it, but you did <laughs> from book in a box where they basically said, look, why should you bother to write a book? We'll tell you why. Not because you're going to make money on the book or sell a lot of copies, but because you can use it as um, uh, a way to monetize something else. You can monetize your speaking gigs. You can monetize your business. You can monetize whatever it is that exactly. you're engaged in that has a better chance of being money. And oh, by the way, our business model here at Book in the Box is you pay us $25,000, we'll write the book for you. Yep. But if you want to know how to make that money back, don't expect that your book is going to sell $25,000 worth of copies. That's, this is it, Mark. This is it. It's popularity and attention. This is the marketplace we're playing in. I mean, he, this guy goes off and rants that Facebook has no business being a publisher. Well, guess what? Amazon has no business making movies. I mean... <laughs> This is what, who has business to do anything? Who has business doing anything? You know, it, you, you, you don't ask for permission to do any of this stuff, no. right? You just go do it if you can do it, if you can get away with it, and if you have the distribution platform that allows it to, you know, reach the audiences you need it to reach. Here he goes on to say, the worst part of, uh, is that as an artist, whenever you hear that I word, know. you know, get ready. <laughs> It feels like your own fault. We're used to a world where if you put something out there that's good, people see it and share it. Tom, when has that ever been the world? I don't, I don't remember when it has been the world. I mean, I, I was reading something about Emily Dickinson's poems. Like, I think she sold one when she was alive. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. It's just that's not reality. Maybe yeah, people Van were Gogh spoiled. Died, Maybe people Van were spoiled. Gogh, Van Gogh died penniless. Yeah, I mean, exactly. there's a reason for that. That's uh, not true in this world. Someone can make something really good, and just because of some weird, weird algorithmic reasons, or if it's not designed specifically for Facebook, it doesn't do well. And then it becomes impossible to know what a good thing to make is anymore. So in other words, Tom, what is a good thing to make by this definition? So, it's something, something that, that a lot of people, <laughs> something that sells. And I, but here's the thing. I look, look, stood back from this, and I said, well, dude, why, who forced you to go to Facebook? with your content. I, you don't need to lay your videos on Facebook. You can avoid, you can, you know, say no Facebook for us. You got to come to the website. Uh -huh. But the reason you're doing that That's right. is because you know the traffic is there. You know the audience is there. And you didn't want your traffic. It wasn't enough for you. That's it. You wanted Facebook's traffic. That's it. Look, when he, at the end, you know, when he says it's like, uh, maybe we should get people uh, a meta-organizing campaign where the media companies will band together and refuse to post sure. on Facebook. Yeah, okay, sure. yeah. Like maybe product manufacturers will band together and refuse to sell through Amazon and Walmart. This ain't going right. to happen. Right? No, no, you can't fight that. The other thing I thought as I read this was, you know, all of this is premised on the idea that without ad support, you don't have a business. So it seems to me the problem over there is they've got a business model problem. They're looking for, you know, banner ads, for pre-rolls, for all that stuff to be the primary, if not the exclusive way they support uh, the company. And isn't that the problem that by putting all their stuff on Facebook and the fact that people aren't clicking back to the site anymore, um, there's, no, uh, there's no views of the pre-rolls and there's no views of the banner ads. Isn't that part of the problem? Look, that's part of it. The other problem is, is the internet has opened up the entire world. So everyone out there that, that's funny, <laughs> they have a platform now. It's not just, oh, I'm a com I'm, I write comedy. Every 
everybody yeah. can be funny. So when he creates like a site, you know, this website that says, I'll pay you 20 bucks for a joke, all of a sudden there's a million people posting things. So mm -hmm. this is, there's an abundance of funny people, video stars, people who can write books. It's all out there now. And we've unleashed it all and said, here, come to the internet, animation, voiceover, all of these people mm -hmm. that can sit in their homes and do this stuff through broadband, how, how does that create value when there's an abundance of content? I don't know. Well, that's, that, is, that is the problem, but I'll tell you, it doesn't create value by being a whiner <laughs> and by wishing that your business model could support you in a way that it no longer can. I mean, neither, that's just plain living in a fantasy world. And, uh, you know, leave it, again, the fact that it comes from someone who's funny. <laughs> I know, that is kind of ironic. It's ironic. It? it is. But he, like, he's, he's at least saying that, well, well, then we'll move to TV. But he's doing that because right now TV is scrambling for content, right? Everybody's producing, right? The Netflix, the Amazons, all of these, all of these people are looking for talent right now. Mm -hmm. If that starts shrinking down, he's going to have the same problem there. Well, so far he doesn't have to worry about that. I don't know why he's complaining. There's plenty of opportunity in well, television. That's what I, hey, send when, me some jokes. I'll, I'll buy a couple jokes. There you go. We need for it on the show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's time for rants <laughs> and raves, Tom. What's what's on tap this week? Well, and this came because I'm reading. I'm thinking about what we're going to talk about. How people are like hypnotized. That's wise. Right. Yeah, right. that's good. Well, yeah, I don't usually do that. I usually just wing it. But I'm thinking, well. Let's pull the curtain back. Are people becoming more aware of all of this bullshit, the fake news, the fake links, the Twitter followers, this guy with the business models? And here's the paradox. On the one hand, it feels to me like we're starting to wake up to this, this whole delusion, right? Mm -hmm. To this desire for popularity and identity and that people are becoming more conscious and they're more selective in what they support in the marketplace. And I emphasize support because I want people to realize that when they purchase something, when they listen to something, they are funding that business. They're funding it, its mission, its philosophies, mm -hmm. its agenda, its people, the salaries. I, do you think people understand that, that they're doing that with their purchases? They're funding something. And then I bump into this article about the Birkin handbag. And, I mean, I suffered such severe cognitive dissonance, I didn't even know what to do with myself. Here's an off-rectangular bag from, mm -hmm. it looks like Hermes, but I guess it's Hermes. It's, it's <laughs> like the ultimate status symbol. This thing retails for somewhere between $10,000 and $200,000. They sold a bag at Christie's auction for $380,000 for a purse. The mm -hmm. company creates this air of exclusivity. They make people think the bags are out of stock. And that creates like waiting lists for the waiting list. And even being on the waiting <laughs> list is a badge of honor. There was a former <laughs> advertising executive told NPR that once you're in, it makes you feel worthy. It, oh, it, great. it gives you identity. 
I'm not kidding you. This is like, I, I went, you got to be kidding. Victoria Beckham, she's rumored to have over 100 Birkin bags in her collection <laughs> worth $2 million. So basically, she could fund funny or die and make that guy happy tomorrow just by That's getting right. rid of those ridiculous bags. Canadian right. rapper Drake, he's supposedly stockpiling Birkin bags for the, quote, woman I end up with, unquote. That tells you a little something about Drake, in my mind, anyway. <laughs> so to me, I think the origin story of the Birkin bag is all you really need to know to understand the essence of it and us. Back in the early 80s, it was created on the back of an airplane sick bag by the CEO. <laughs> now, is that funny? You know what's even funnier? That the company name is pronounced Air Mess. Wake up, people. <laughs> Do something with your money that helps support people that are doing some good things, some great things, some empowering things. They all need it. Don't buy a $20,000 purse. Go sponsor a podcast. Yes, uh, mramsey at markramseymedia.com. Okay, we good. can fix you right up. <laughs> That's great, Tom. By the way, it is indeed mramsey at markramseymedia.com, just for the record. <laughs> just in case I got that twice. That's terrific. That's I had never, ever heard that story before. I have a couple, I, one of which is a different kind of origin story. This is kind of a rant, I guess. I mean, a rave. Um, I don't even know the difference at this point. <laughs> Um, this one's from our friends at Media Village, and I just found this to be a charming backstory I'd never heard before, and that is the origin of the, um, the most famous jingle in history, which is the Coke jingle. I'd like to teach the world to sing. Remember that? Oh, yeah. The world's most famous commercial jingle traces its origin to a dense fog that covered Britain in 1971. That winter fog was so thick that the plane carrying Bill Backer an ad man working with the soft drink giant Coca-Cola was diverted to Shannon, Ireland. At the crowded airport cafe, he gathered with passengers from planes from all over the world that had been similarly stranded. But instead of being irate at their fate, he noted that people were grabbing refreshments and chatting and telling stories. <laughs> he had a flash of insight and immediately began to scribble out what would become iconic lyrics. I'd like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. Backer, who poetically had started in the mailroom of McCann Erickson and rose by that time to creative director, met up with other members of the team, including music producer Billy Davis. They embedded the Coke thought into the more universal feel-good sentiments that the ad is famous for, and the lyrics became the ones we all know. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love, etc. After adding a catchy tune, the jingle was recorded by the New Seekers, a popular British group uh, of the era. It was then shipped to radio stations across the United States. Now, Tom, there's been no ad yet, okay? <laughs> it was shipped to radio stations across the uh, United States, airing for the first time on February 12, 1971. Um, several Coke bottlers complained it was too subtle, but the public loved it. People began calling into radio stations and requesting the jingle as if it were a popular song. Indeed, the song became so popular, Coke decided to turn it into a TV commercial, eventually going so far as to greenlight a $250,000 budget, a staggering sum at the time. 
The commercial filmed on a flower-laden hillside outside of Rome featured fresh-faced youths who had been called from local embassies and, and universities for their ability to visually represent every corner of the world. The dewy-faced woman in the opening shot was a British nanny whom producers had cast when they saw her walking the streets of Rome. <laughs> they were all then taught to lip-sync the song. <coughs> the commercial started air in July of 1971 and immediately resonated... Coke received more than 100,000 letters praising the ad. That's amazing. After that, this is my favorite part. <coughs> the jingle was so successful that Davis wanted to record it separately as a pop hit. At first, the new seekers, artists, as our friends at Funny or Die would say, declined due to scheduling conflicts. <laughs> so Davis created a new group from studio singers called the Hillside Singers who recorded the modified version from radio. When that became a hit, the new seeker suddenly had a change of heart. <laughs> Somehow their calendars magically up. opened. Freed up. And they recorded their own version. Both versions of the song would make Billboard's Hot 100 chart. That's crazy. The new seeker's version peaked number seven. The same week, the Hillside Singers peaked at number 13. The song went on to be recorded by a wide range of languages as well. It sold more sheet music than any song in the 10 years before 1971. So it's just an amazing story. I thought that, you know, if you saw the final episodes of uh, Mad Men, you saw it was kind of integrated into that as well. But a, a kind of a great story about, you know, talk about how attention is the metric du jour. And, you know, here's something that came out of nowhere. Um that just kind of bubbled up because it captured uh, you know, the attention of so many because it was in the right place at the right time with the right message and the right hook, the right melody, the right everything. I just love that story. Bubbled up. I like how you use bubbled up. Yes. That was Now, good. my final one, <laughs> I, uh, final one, this is, I don't know if this is a rant or a rave, but Tom, you know, as you know, I try and keep on top of the controversies in Wax Museum. Oh, land. no. And there's a big one oh, this week. Oh, Beyonce thing. <laughs> I saw that and this I said, the, he's not going to bring this. Of course I'm going to oh, bring this up. God. This is that second time Beyonce wax tragedy has hit the news. <laughs> oh, and geez. I don't know why this is such a problem. For some reason, getting a Beyonce wax figure right is like, you know, the cold fusion of wax figures. <laughs> it's... it's <laughs> It's no one can quite <laughs> capture the essence, you know, of how to do this. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> this time, this time, <laughs> it's, there's cold fusion and there's devising a, a, a Beyonce wax figure. No, These are two equally insurmountable <laughs> challenges. So this is a wax museum in Niagara Falls, Ontario, Canada. And and this one is the Louis Tussauds Wax Museum, as differentiated from Madame Tussauds. Somehow, even though they've got a virtually identical name, neither one can quite capture the artistry that is Beyonce. Have you seen the picture of this wax museum? Uh, no, I saw the picture of the Beyonce. Yeah, so once again, it's, it's several shades lighter than the actual Beyonce because for some reason... You know, colors are hard to get in wax. I don't know why that is. And but the other thing that and secondly, it looks like less than nothing like her. It it, it you could almost. I mean, I looked at it and I said, you know, that could be any realtor I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, if it weren't for the fact that she actually has a name tag that says Beyonce, 
You literally, I think all that separates any of us from looking like Beyonce is evidently a name tag reading Beyonce. That's what I learned from, from this episode. And I think just the fact that something like this, it's, if you think they, through all the evolutionary they, they, phases. You know why they did that? You know why they did that? Tell me. To get on our show. <laughs> now people are going to go up there to look at this thing. <laughs> Well, it's gotten more social media attention than the real one would have gotten, that's for darn sure. But I don't know, you know, if you think of all the steps something like this has to go through, someone has to create the art, someone has to say, yes, let's proceed. Someone has to do the mold, they have to say, yes, let's proceed. Someone has to have the wax figure come out of the mold, yes, let's go forward. Someone has to paint it, right? Yes, that looks great. Someone has to put clothes on it. Someone has to put it in a certain spot in the museum and then put a name tag on it and put a spotlight well, on it. Mark, All along the way, Mark, everyone says, yes, Mark, that's great. That what? is a perfect example of what happens when you throw any idea into committee. That is what comes <laughs> out at the end. <laughs> and that is Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. If you need to stay abreast <laughs> of what's happening in wax museums, there is, I, you know, Tom, I may be wrong when I say this, but I don't think there's another podcast that touches news from wax no, museums. We should, that's our most popular. <laughs> we should go that direction fully. The Wax Museum <laughs> podcast. <laughs> you know what? One of these days, as Tom knows, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show, but every, anywhere I travel, any place where I happen to oh, pass he, by he a wax museum, my wife takes a picture of me in front of it. I send it to Tom. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. <laughs> oh, boy. You can also catch us at art19.com, Radio Inc., Media Village, and Google Play Music. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asecker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. Catch up on older, or as I call them, classic episodes at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. <laughs> Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt. Absolutely. Exciting audio for media. <laughs> he is this, really so. exciting. You can, yes, Jeff is the one person who listens all the way through. <laughs> you can catch him at jeff-schmidt.com. For Tom A. Sacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>